We interrupt this broadcast with some important news. Let's rewind and check out the biggest news stories from this week. It's time, it's time for Taiwan This Week. Good evening and welcome to Taiwan This Week with me, your host, Gavin Phipps. And I'm joined this evening by Nicholas Smith of the UK's Telegraph. Good evening. And Sean Su, who's currently in Tainan. I'm glad to be back. And we'll begin with the latest on the coronavirus situation here in Taiwan with Health Minister Chen Shih-jong on Monday of this week, announcing that the current level two coronavirus alert will remain in place after September the 6th when it was due to expire. Certain restrictions, though, will be eased as local infection rates are continuing to decline. Those eased regulations include allowing people to use shower facilities at sports venues and on passenger number restrictions on trains. However, the ban on saunas and other activities in enclosed spaces with no ventilation at sports venues will remain unchanged. The Central Epidemic Command Centre lowered its coronavirus alert back to level two on July the 27th. And the health minister has stressed that the alert will likely remain in place until the end of this year if the global coronavirus situation is not brought under control. Now, the Central Epidemic Command Centre this week also announced that quarantine regulations for Taiwan-based airline flight crew members will be tightened from September the 15th. The move comes amid concerns over the coronavirus Delta variant after it was confirmed that a Taiwan-based pilot had been infected with the disease. And the health minister says that border control measures need to be tightened. And that means that long-haul flight crew members who are not fully vaccinated will need to quarantine at home for seven days, followed by seven days of enhanced self-health management from September the 15th, while fully vaccinated crew members will be required to quarantine five days, followed by nine days of enhanced self-health management. They are required to take PCR tests on their final day of quarantine and again during and upon ending enhanced self-health management. While short-haul flight crew members who are not fully vaccinated are to observe 14 days of enhanced self-health management and undergo PCR tests every seven days and while fully vaccinated crew members are to undergo seven days of enhanced self-health management and a test every seven days. However, the Taoyuan Pilots Union, which is one of the island's largest, is questioning those regulations and is in fact calling for all pilots to be quarantined at home for 14 days when they return to Taiwan. And in other news, Taiwan received its first batch of 930,000 doses of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccine this Thursday. The vaccines arrived at Taoyuan International Airport on a cargo Lux flight. Now, the vaccines are the first batch of the 15 million doses purchased by Honhai's Yonglin Charity and Education Foundation, Taiwan Semiconductor Manufacturing and the Tsuchi Foundation. And the epidemic Command Center says rollout of those vaccines is expected to begin in a couple of weeks and apparently it will begin with those people aged between 12 and 17 followed by those in the 18 to 22 age bracket. So Sean, yes. obviously the level 2 alert, did you expect it to be cancelled or it was pretty predictable they would just continue with the level 2 alert? I think it was pretty predictable that they're going to continue to level 2 alert. I think it's because there's a trade-off. I mean, currently we are manufacturing lots of Medigen uh, local vaccines, and we're currently getting more vaccines from abroad. So I think uh, the estimation could be that this could take, this process could take maybe another three months or so, uh, roughly before, uh, by some estimates, before we can achieve quote-unquote herd immunity or um, the majority of people in Taiwan will get uh, immunity, uh, or at least fully vaccinated. Uh, Currently, the number stands around 41%. So why not wait a little bit longer to make sure most of Taiwan is vaccinated before you start loosening things up? Because 
we've seen all across the world how quickly, like New Zealand is a fantastic example, uh, Singapore is a fantastic example, that all you need is one case and then suddenly things explode really quickly. Um, a lot, you know, regarding airline pilots, initially we thought uh, that maybe the outbreak occurred from the hotel, but it turns out that from blood tests that Wanhua, the, the Wanhua cluster outbreak actually occurred a little bit earlier, it seems, from the hotel. So, uh, you know, I mean, it's still under investigation, but until we can really get fully protected, lives do matter. So I do agree that, yeah. Uh, other things uh, that you mentioned earlier, which is like um, people debating whether uh, uh, airline crew members need to be uh, quarantined for 14 days or less. Uh, for the pilot uh, a couple months ago, the pilot that broke quarantine, it was actually self-management the 11th day uh he did not uh break uh his own uh, uh the quarantine period which was i think only five days they also had also increased the fines then as well for breaking this uh uh, uh quarantine period so therefore I, I think uh you know the cecc has shown itself to be very flexible uh it's okay to to continue the level two for a little bit longer uh restaurants not all of them are open but a lot of them have opened up uh life is returning to normal but having increased caution uh doesn't hurt i think especially when we're only looking at a few months and of course sean you can't have a sauna at the moment Oh, that's terrible. <laughs> I mean, I feel bad for the companies uh, or certain uh, organizations that deal with uh, lots of contact. For instance, massage parlors, uh, a lot of them people have to take PCR tests every week just to make sure, you know, as well as extensive contact tracing and so forth and so on. But uh, I mean, you know, let's wait until we get uh, lots of those vaccines out, until most of the population is vaccinated. Uh, although Medigen didn't show a lot of desire among the local Taiwan populace, but it has increased dramatically ever since Tsai took those shots from Medigen, and, and so did the vice president. So ideally, if we can produce enough Medigen, ideally, we can get most of the population safe. Then we could talk about that sauna time. Uh, well, first of all, I mean, who wants to take a sauna just now? It's like 37 <laughs> degrees outside and humid. I mean, that's that just incredible. Um, so I think that's probably something we can live without, but um, apart from sauna owners. But I mean, I, I agree with everything Sean has said. It's, it's, um, I think it was inevitable that we would continue with restrictions. We're still bang in the middle of a, of a pandemic and we really need to adjust our expectations about when that's going to be open and, and when things are going to be so-called normal. Um, and, you know, we are living uh, a pretty normal life now that, that the latest outbreak has been curbed. Um, most businesses are functioning semi-normally. Schools can open. Um, so I think to a certain extent, you know, we really just have to focus on on what we have and be grateful for what we have. And, you know, when you look at neighbouring Vietnam, who were doing so well alongside Taiwan last year, and, and now they're really struggling and their their healthcare system is completely overwhelmed. And that's the thing that, that Taiwan really needs to avoid. Um, and you can't do that without... Um, some form of restriction and some form of caution. So I do think that people need to be realistic. Even even the um, countries who have um, forged ahead with vaccinations, like you know, if you look at Israel, uh, for example, they're 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 still facing a lot of restrictions to their lives, um, and you know, in many ways. Uh, a lot more than than Taiwan is, so it's it's really it's a global problem. It's you know um, we all have to get to the point where uh, populations are vaccinated enough that that 
um, we can start to um, slowly return to um, what life was like before the pandemic. But one country isn't going to be able to do that alone. We're going to have restrictions for a long time to come. And what about the call by the Taoyuan Pilots Union for pilots to be quarantined for longer than the government wants them to be quarantined for? That's Yeah, that, that surprised me that they want pilots to be quarantined for longer. Um, I mean, it's a really difficult question, isn't it? Because, it, you know, it, it did contribute to the last outbreak and pilots are um, on the front line. They're high risk workers when, when it comes to the possibility of, of spreading the virus, even the fully vaccinated pilots, unfortunately, because, you know, we've, we've seen that there are breakthrough infections. And, and also, if you're fully vaccinated, you can still pass it on. So I, I feel I feel for airline crews. It's, it's a tough time to be in the airline business. Hopefully it will be temporary um, restrictions. But um, I, I, I think, again, we just have to trust the government that they've been looking into a fair compromise on this and that they are doing the best that they can in, in public interest. And Sean, of course, the first batch of the Pfizer-BioNTech coronavirus vaccines arrived on Thursday. Yeah, uh, I'm excited about that because we can get more of our children vaccinated, those 12 to 17. I I want to point out that all the vaccines are being flown in. And that's why you need those pilots uh, flying in and out. (laughs) Right. Uh, Because if you if you don't, then what happens? You know, if they're all quarantined for 14 days, then it makes it very hard uh, for um, airline, the airline industry to function properly. I understand that it's very complicated. And so pilots routinely have to fly out. I used to have a neighbor. Uh, in my old apartment, my neighbor was a pilot, and I would see him come in every couple of days in his uh, really nice uh, uniform and everything like that. And, you know, even during normal pre-pandemic times, uh, you know, he would have to fly out every couple of days. So uh, it does make it very difficult uh, to get more vaccines in and all, all, all of our everyday stuff, not to mention our exports. Uh, Taiwan's exports are also reliant on these. So that's my first thing I want to point out. But, yeah, I'm glad that more and more vaccines are coming in. Uh, Pfizer-BioNTech, I understand that in the beginning there was some controversy, uh, but uh, I think mostly that's been resolved. I do commend the Thai administration for uh, being open enough to accept uh, vaccines for basically anywhere uh, and, and that they were assisting apparently in negotiating for those to come in. Uh, it is important for our children to also get vaccinated so they can protect uh, the adults that they interact with, families that they work with. Maybe uh, some of these vaccinated kids will then be more able or more likely to visit grandma, grandpa. You know, these family units are dependent on having our children around as well so it's all good i think it's it's fantastic news for us now moving on in some rather less good coronavirus related news while the government has been cheering the significantly lower number of domestic cases in recent weeks and has also been gradually lifting restrictions uh, not everyone here is getting to enjoy the slow return to how it was prior to the pandemic as many migrant workers are still facing well restrictions human rights groups here have of course been very vocal about the way that some companies have been treating their migrant workforce and some of them are still banned from going out and are now confined to their 
dormitories still for nearly 24 hours a day if they're not fully vaccinated. Meanwhile, the Ministry of Labour this week announced new rules which aimed at limiting migrant workers from being able to transfer to new jobs across different sectors. The new restrictions come as the island is facing a labour shortage caused in part by the suspension of the entry of migrant workers in May. Now, while reports are saying that the increasing number of foreign domestic caregivers are seeking to move to higher paying factory jobs and according to government figures a total of 1,751 caregivers left their jobs in favour of factory work through the end of May of this year and that compared to only 287 for the whole of 2020 and under the new policy which is set to come into effect this Sunday migrant workers will no longer be able to transfer to jobs in other industries simply by obtaining permission from their current and future employees there's now a rather long-winded process meaning they have to register for a transfer at a government-run employment service centre which will advertise their services to employers within their current sector for a period of 14 days and only if no employers express interest in hiring them during that period will the employment service centre begin helping them to seek a new job opportunity in another industry and of course Nicola you recently wrote about the plight of the migrant workers for the telegraph I did indeed, yeah. Um, I've written twice about this. The first time was um, when we were in level three and the restrictions were very onerous on factory workers. And that was partly fueled by um, some cases that were found in factories and um, the the kind of panic that that seemed to cause among factory owners um, and companies. Um, Because a a lot of these factories are are obviously key to global supply chains, especially of semiconductors semiconductors which are already there's already a semiconductor um, crunch and and um, you know people industries across the world are crying out for them but um, the people who are keeping these factories going are basically facing a two-tier pandemic where it's one rule for the rest of society and another rule for for foreign workers who are largely um, from the Philippines and Indonesia in in Taiwan. Um, And so the first investigation that we did was speaking to workers and also looking at the the warnings they'd been given by their factories. And mainly these are coming from the labor agents who control who control their lives essentially, and they're the the, the middlemen between the, the workers and the, the factories, which gives companies some kind of um, deniability, but but that's really no excuse. Um, so uh, people were being told that they weren't allowed to go out at all, that they they were ha- being forced to use swipe cards, so that they were their movements were being monitored. Um, they were being threatened um, with uh, bearing the financial costs if they got sick. That they the some in, in one of the worst notices that we saw people were being warned that if they died from COVID that their families would not be given their body. Um, and so there was that kind of psychological pressure that's been put on workers. Um, and several of us in the international media wrote these stories. Um, and I did expect to see some kind of change with level two, but but um that hasn't changed for, for many workers. They're still facing restrictions on their movements that that Taiwanese workers in the same factories are not. So they're not allowed out for more than four hours a day. They're not allowed out for more than 90 minutes a day. Um, And it's just 
it's just blatant discrimination. Uh, you know, I can't be. Uh, first of all, I just wanted to say that I think the reporting from Nicola and uh, the Telegram here on this very topic has been. I think I personally feel like it's award-winning in the English language. I've not seen any other coverage that has covered it this well. Uh, she's just mentioned only a very small portion of the things that migrant workers who Taiwan's economy depends on, you know, uh, go through. And I personally think it is a shame of Taiwan um, to have this happen. That we they undergo essentially what could be defined as level three or four, while, you know, I can just go out to my 7-Eleven whenever I desire to get whatever I need. So I, I do think that, you know, with reporting, one of the best things about Taiwan is that we have people like Nicola Smith here reporting on these things so we can enact change, uh, so we can be better. Now, I do hope that it works faster than this. Uh, I know earlier, uh, last year, for instance, a lot of clubs and bars demanded foreigners uh, or ex to show their passport, even if they had an APRC, to bring their passport just to go into these places. And there was reporting, um, and they felt the pressure, and they changed. I am hoping that maybe these companies will eventually change. They're stuck in a hard place because if they complain too much, if these migrant workers uh, or, or these uh, uh, laborers, they complain too much, the companies may fire them. They may face penalties. They may face a lot of problems, and they have to feed their families back home, in which uh, are not doing very well with the pandemic. So it's it's a really tough situation for them to be in. And Taiwan society is only as good as how we treat everybody, including you know our worst treatment of people. And I really hope that 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 bottom level of the barrel, so to speak, can be raised higher and we could grow. Um, you know, I mean, you, you can't treat people this way and expect them to be, you know, loyal uh, once the pandemic opens up or, you know, to, to care about their work. They're, they're going to feel unhappy and it makes us look bad. So I do hope, uh, I, I lo every time I always look forward to Nicola's reporting on these and other related matters, especially when it comes to labor rights or, or uh, so on. Uh, it's just been excellent. Uh, I think uh, I do hope that Taiwan can change, but yeah, like I said, uh, it is a shame of Taiwan. And Sean, what about the, the government policy to stop caregivers from changing jobs to different sectors? I think it's very blunt. I mean, caregivers are making low enough salaries. Of course, they're going to switch towards factory workers. They're making much more if they switch to becoming factory workers. But the Ministry of Labor doing this is just a really blunt effort you know i mean it's it's not helping uh uh it's not helping what we should do is come up with better ways to to address the problem to address the source of the issue maybe we can do better testing better pcr testing better quarantine systems where if we have a labor shortage then the government and the company should pay for the labor instead of doing these really awkward sort of motions where it's like okay well we have an aging population so we can't let the caregivers move over to the factories, you know, they need to work with these agents. Actually, the whole agent system needs to be revamped. Uh, this is a conversation that's been going on for decades now. Uh, my grandfather, uh, you know, was one person who needed a caregiver for a long time. So I feel for, I do understand where the elderly need their caregivers, but you can't lock people into a job that they don't want or underpays them in a situation where they don't get equal treatment. You know, we don't want to be known as places like, for instance, uh, uh, Dubai or whatnot that have egregious labor violations. We could do better and we should do better. So again, 
that's why I think Nicola deserves an award, and so does the Telegraph, because every time I read her articles um, in English, and I'm like, this is going to enact change. It may not be tomorrow, but it will down the long time, long term. Anyway, moving on now, before Nicola gets an award, a professor of medicine at the National Taiwan University, who happens to live in Singapore, was all over the news this week here after saying that Taiwan needed to abandon its zero coronavirus strategy and instead focus on vaccines and improving clinical outcomes. Now, Huang Yunru made the statement during an online press conference, which was organized by the National Taiwan University Hospital. And she told reporters at the event that it is possible to live with the virus if a large percentage of the population is fully vaccinated and she cited Singapore's vaccination rate of 80% of its population. Now, according to Huang, Taiwan's top priority should be on raising its inoculation rate. She also touted Singapore's use of an app-based vaccine passport for visiting public places, saying that Taiwan has not adopted similar measures due to its low vaccination rate and legal concerns over digital privacy. And Huang went on to claim that digital vaccine passports do not necessarily infringe on human rights and Singapore has shown that they are useful incentives for people to get vaccinated. So, Sean, you watched the entire interview. Yes, it's a, it's actually a, an hour and twenty some odd minutes long. Uh, I have to, I want to point out that the questions were asked by a reporter, and for greater context, uh, NTU National Taiwan University Hospital does these uh, sort of press conferences almost monthly. So Professor Huang was called again because uh, she is reporting on uh, Singapore and how they are dealing with uh, the the pandemic. Now the topic was basically a talk about whether visiting hospitals was safe for patients. So the vast majority of the talks was about how Singapore had uh, rather stringent and smarter measures in dealing with hospital visitations, for instance. So uh, visitors were not able to, they segregated the bathrooms, for example, for patients versus visitors. So visitors wouldn't, so the chances of getting uh, infected by sharing the same bathrooms was reduced. They've also taken other a myriad of other uh, smart measures to ensure that visitors to hospitals were not going to spread or infect to make hospitals a more safer space uh, in the middle of a pandemic right uh, and then there were questions being asked by reporters and one reporter asked three questions uh, which was answered by professor Huang now this is why I feel like it's a little bit un- over sensationalized uh, she had talked about she had talked about Singapore's app tracking for vaccine since what's being done in Singapore that Taiwan could follow, but she didn't say Taiwan needed to necessarily follow it exactly. She just said that these are measures that Taiwan, uh, that Singapore has done, which has shown effectiveness in contact tracing automatically. Uh, yes, she was asked about whether it would be a human rights violation. And she said that she thought that Taiwan could do it in a way that wasn't, not so much that she felt that Singapore wasn't potentially breaching or into privacy by using their app, uh, which, by the way, has has generated tons of controversy uh, online. And in, and in terms of the strategy about COVID zero, that only began in Singapore a few days ago, and just like a day or two before she had her talk on uh, September first. So it's a little bit misconstruing, I think, because uh, Singapore hasn't had the chance to change its really tangibly change its strategy outside from COVID zero yet. They've announced it, so she wasn't necessarily saying that uh, COVID zero was a bad strategy, but more that. Uh, 
uh, we could look to Singapore and try to learn their lessons and then adopt our own strategy here in Taiwan. Uh, I think misconstruing what people have been saying has been happening a while. Uh, back in May, an NTU professor was slightly misconstrued at the onset of the local Taiwan outbreak that we should give up any lockdowns or similar measures. And, you know, given that in three months we've gone down to almost zero local cases a day, uh, it doesn't look good. But, you know, it, it, that is, it wasn't necessarily what he was saying. So COVID zero is not only achievable, but perhaps good until we can get 80% or higher vaccinations. That's my opinion, right? So taking action now, again, like I said earlier, three months before we get there is a bit premature. And that, again, wasn't necessarily what Professor Huang was saying. She was just detailing primarily what Singapore was doing. Uh, and not to mention, Singapore right now only has about a fifth of the population of Taiwan, but over 100 cases a day. The seven-day average right now, according to Bing COVID, uh, Bing's COVID map, is 133. You know, if you multiplied that by five, it would be like the start of the pen, uh, outbreak in Taiwan. And, you know, we would just switch to level three, right? So I think let's wait out the season and revisit this. And I do understand that, you know, the local Taiwan media really is excited and may have overstated what people have said. But I think Huang was a lot more nuanced after watching the entire interview. Right, of course, Nicola, the talk of the app there and questions over whether, because of course there wasn't, there was an app, there was a tracing app released last year, of course. And that got questions over, well, people were, people were worried in Taiwan that it was tracking their movements. Mm, yeah. Well, first of all, Sean, thanks for your kind words earlier. <laughs> but like on on the app, um, yeah, I mean, it's there's always, there's always going to be privacy concerns about um, the use of, of data um, to, to track people's movements and to track the virus. And that's something that I, I just think every country has to have its own transparent debate. And there's going to be some countries that will have that transparency, which, you know, I, I expect Taiwan to be one of those. Um, but other countries like Singapore, then I, I think you are on um, shakier ground, um, given some of Singapore's authoritarian style tendencies. Um, and, you know, we did see with Singapore last year that they backtracked on one of the the pledges they made about data from their app not being used. Um, I can't remember the exact details, but they said that it wouldn't be used um, for anything other than health purposes. And that turned out not quite to be the case. So it, it, that's definitely um, taking things to a different level where you, you do actually need to have the proper legislation in place and you have to have a very robust debate with with civil society and, and address people's concerns about privacy. Um, I mean, you know, at the end of the day, if you want complete privacy, then you might as well just go off the internet. But um, you do need to have some kind of measures uh, to control the virus and you need to, to get that balance right. But I think what Singapore really does have right, though, is to shift away from this uh, idea of, of zero, zero COVID. And the, at the core of their strategy is, is to eventually start treating COVID-19 like the flu, like a, an endemic disease rather than a pandemic. And I, I think they're on the right track for doing that. Um, they've said there was a paper that came out in July by three of their top experts um, about, you know, how we're going to do this. It, it was the kind of bare bones of the strategy, but they, you know, they essentially said we're going to stop counting cases. Um, we're going to focus on the treatment. Um, and we're just going to focus on keeping people out of hospitals. But the only way you can do that is through mass vaccination. And, you know, we've got Singapore at 80 percent fully vaccinated, Taiwan's at 4 percent. So 
I do think that Singapore is a country to watch, that we can learn a lot from Singapore, um, but we need to close that gap in vaccinations. And even with Singapore being so, um, having done so well in vaccinations, um, it's still only opening up very slowly. I mean, you see that they're, they're starting to allow people come, to come from Hong Kong and Macau with, with, um, with the possibility of avoiding quarantine. They're going to open that up uh, to uh, travellers from Germany and Brunei. But it's very, very slow, um, you know, incremental steps, even at that level of vaccination. So I don't think now is the time to get too excited about, um, you know, being able, to, being able to open up fully anytime soon. And we have to take a short break now, but we will return after these rather super important commercials. Welcome back to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week, and we'll move away from coronavirus-related news now. And you may remember the Chinese cheeky chappy who claimed to have crossed the Taiwan Strait in a dinghy in April of this year. He, of course, was picked up by authorities near the Taichung Harbour and claimed that he came here to seek freedom and democracy. Well, on Tuesday of this week, the Taichung District Prosecutor's Office explained to him bluntly that freedom and democracy doesn't mean one can simply pop off to another country without using their passport, and he was in for illegally entering Taiwan. The 34-year-old man was charged with violating immigration laws and now faces at three years in prison or a fine of 90,000 NT. Now, there had been questions regarding the man's lofty claims to have crossed one of the world's busiest waterways unnoticed since his arrival here, Sean, of course. The cheeky chappy in the dinghy. He's indicted. He came here for freedom and he's now, well, he could be incarcerated. Uh, uh, this this is this is one of those things that really kind of hurts, uh, you know. It, it one wonders, uh, and this is the kind of question that people bring up, like, okay, so what if he had come from Hong Kong instead? Would we have treated him differently? And what if he came from, you know, so and so nation? Yeah, and and um, I think the real big question is, you know, of course Taiwan has to fine or indict people that enter Taiwan illegally. And yes, Taiwan is not the best nation to seek asylum because we don't have very formal, uh, uh, structured, openly structured and transparent means for granting people asylum. And he would have to also bring a case that he is being persecuted in China, although that sounds absurd, uh, given that it's China that we're talking about that is infamous for being very authoritarian. But... Uh, on the other hand, I really worry, is he going to be sent back? And by all accounts, it's very possible he might sent, be sent back to China, which will only punish him further. So, uh, you know, my, my view of this is that uh, we're kind of stuck in a, a hard spot. If we can prove that he is being uh, persecuted, maybe Taiwan can ideally show some sort of mercy. But I do also know that Taiwan as a government uh, or Taiwan as a nation is not very welcome of refugees. Uh, we've heard countless stories about Hong Kongers that uh, transferred through Taiwan and then decided to seek asylum only to be stuck in the airport for months. Uh, and other Hong Kongers that have fled to Taiwan only to be sort of uh, hidden uh, for a long time until Taiwan was able to negotiate months later for other places where they can go. So, uh, yeah, tough situation for all involved. Yeah, I, I mean, if, if this guy was... Um genuinely seeking freedom and democracy and was was being persecuted where he was and i do really feel for him that you know he's kind of ended up in jail 
um, I understand that there has to be there have to be um, rules, there have to be laws. Um, but I I think you know, as Sean said, that's something that that Taiwan has to work out what that process is and what what their process for for would be refugees is, and and to clarify that more. And I I do understand the concerns in in Taiwan. You know, the, um, the government is obviously worried about. Uh, the possibility of spying um, and of, um, you know, an influx of refugees coming from China. I don't see that happening. I don't see many people taking to a dinghy to go across the, the strait. Um, and I, yeah, I, I do think that they just need to sort out that process for people who have genuine asylum claims to to be able to find a way to, to live here. And Hong Kong really did throw that into um, perspective um, with, you know, it, it's easier for Hong Kongers who could invest here or, or could come for education. But that that left out a lot of people who genuinely felt that they were at risk in Hong Kong. And, and you know, Taiwan was a very popular destination for these people and it wasn't always possible for them to come here. And there, there was an interesting um, interesting piece in foreign policy done by Lev Nachman and um Shelley Rigger, among other people, um, that, that showed, um, it kind of showed the political dilemma that the government is facing as well, because it was about, you know, public opinion towards Hong Kongers and, uh, you know, allowing Hong Kongers to move to Taiwan. Um, and while there was um, great sympathy for the cause of Hong Kongers and pushing back against Beijing and standing up to the Chinese Communist Party, that, that level of support dropped significantly when it came to the question of would you support offering Hong Kongers, um, you know, immigration to, to Taiwan. And 36 percent of Taiwanese who responded to the poll um, that was carried out said yes, and 23 percent were against, but 42 percent were ambivalent. And I think the government's probably looking at that as well, because people are then worried about um, the economy, about housing prices, and the government's probably trying to weigh up those concerns. Um, also, not doesn't want to kind of blatantly um, uh, irritate China. Um, so there's there's a real fine line to to walk there, um, and I, it's it's a big question that Taiwan has to face over the next few years. And of course, Sean, a couple of years ago, there was calls for Taiwan to accept Syrian refugees. And in recent weeks, there's been calls for the government here to accept the odd Afghan refugee or two. But I mean, if the government can't work out a policy for cross-strait issues, is, do you think it's ever got a hope of accepting refugees from further flung parts of the globe? Uh, sad to say, no. Um, we are unfortunately a country where uh, a couple years ago they were building a housing facility for migrant workers. And sometimes I can't remember the name of the town, but I remember that people in the town were coming out saying that they were concerned about the building of this facility because they housing facility because they felt that it might introduce quote unquote rapists and other things like that. Uh, I do think that there are portions of the Taiwan populace, sadly enough, that have not really opened up. I mean, as Nicola reported, we don't even treat our uh, migrant workers or caregivers that well. So I think we have a lot of homework to do and a lot of reforms to do before we get there. Um, this is not excusing Taiwan in this front. Taiwan does need a transparent uh, refugee policy. It needs to be made very clear. You know, if they really, if Taiwan's government or, you know, 
know, the people of Taiwan really feel that we don't want to accept refugees, then you have to make a policy that makes that clear so refugees can go on their cell phones or whatever, get check on the internet and see that, okay, Taiwan's po- pos- po- uh, policy and process is really difficult, so maybe Taiwan isn't the best place to go to. As long as there's this black hole in that aspect, then unfortunately you'll get people that come in that 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 aren't treated well that would probably get better uh, 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 will go through a much more humane process in another country. Ta- look, I love Taiwan. Taiwan isn't perfect though, and that's why reporting on this is r- pivotal because maybe we will get those changes. There will come point where Taiwan needs to face this head on, as you know, migratory, climate change, other things results, or, or authoritarian nations and so forth and so on results in more and more f- refugees uh, uh, going across the world. And Nicola mentioned earlier, like, yeah, Taiwan had a policy to allow, uh, you know, rich Hong Kongers, uh, highly educated Hong Kongers from coming in. But if we look at most of the protests in Hong Kong in 2019, a lot of them were students that didn't have a lot of money, that didn't have... And, and, and if you look back on the UK as well, their policy to open up to Hong Kongers were rather discriminatory towards those that had already had wealth or property or land or means. So, and while as refugees tend to have less means to do so, you know, so this this whole thing is excruciating to look at, and uh, I think Taiwan. The only solution for this is transparency. We need to open up and have an honest, tangible discussion about how Taiwan will treat refugees if we want to be known as that shining beacon of democracy in Asia. And talking of that, well, we talked about the government's plans for an English language news and media streaming platform last year on this show. And I did so with both Sean and Nicola. And on Monday of this week, its Taiwan Plus platform went online. The platform is being run by the national news agency CNA and has some 770 million NT in government funding. President Tsai Ing-wen recorded a message for the launch party on Monday saying Taiwan needed a platform to highlight to the world the island's diversity, democratic achievements and aspirations to contribute to the international community. Now, reports and officials have been touting the launch of the Taiwan Plus platform as being in a position to counter China's global English language media reach, with legislative speaker Yoshi Kun saying that Taiwan needs to be able to tell its own stories and confront misconceptions put out by China. So, Nicola, we talked about this last year and we, we were wondering what they were going to do and they released the website on Monday to the general public. So you had a butchers and what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I I think it looks very slick. Um, I think, you know, they cover a a wide range of topics that you wouldn't necessarily get in, you know, see in um, the regular regular local media or or definitely not the international media. There were... um, yeah, several issues that they raised, like about Taiwanese passports, about Medellin, um, which I thought the, the new service was pretty balanced from what I've seen so far. And, you know, with interesting subjects that went a bit more in depth than, say, international media would in Taiwan. It was because it's much more localised. And I, I think there's a need for that. I do think it's right that Taiwan needs to tell its story um, in English for you know to reach a wider audience. Um, and... I think we should keep an open mind about Taiwan Plus. Um, there have been questions raised about the funding and that, you know, they, they've received government report um, support. 
But there are other models for that around the world, like, you know, BBC, NPR, AFP, among others. Um, so I, I do think it needs to be properly scrutinised um, for balance and, and objectivity. Um, but at the same time, I, I know several journalists who've gone to work for it and they're very good journalists who have, have, have very good records. So I, I think that it's... Um, you know, we we just need to give it a chance to show um, to show us what it, what it's going to do, how it's going to operate, um, the issues it's going to cover. That you know that they kind of focus on on diversity and 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 um, kind of independent news gathering, and also just I don't think it does any harm at all to showcase showcase Taiwan to a wider audience. I think this is part of an overall strategy of the Thai administration in expanding its uh, uh, soft power and reach around the world. Uh, I'm going to use an analogy. Uh, for instance, um, this year in the Olympics, for instance, uh, you know, we've won 12 uh, uh, awards, uh, 12 uh, medals, whereas in the 2016 Rio Olympics, we only won three. What changed? And a lot of it is because the Thai administration had vastly increased the budget and facilities and whatnot for our athletes because they know that is a big soft power uh, uh, uh mechanism or weapon or something to, to spread Taiwan standing around the world. And indeed, uh, there was lots of conversations, tons of articles about Taiwan. What is Chinese Taipei? Why they called that? Um, you know, and also, also profiles about the athletes. Uh, that, so these in 2016, there were questions on why Thai should increase the budgets of sports, uh, you know, and why is why are we doing things like bilingual 2030? Why are we, you know, putting money into trying to do outreach? We already have focused Taiwan for CNA. Why are we doing this new Taiwan Plus thing? And at the time, it wasn't very clear when they talked about this last year. Uh, incidentally, I think Nicola and I were both on, uh, but. I now think that, okay, I get it now. So I'm watching their videos and they're talking a lot about the soft culture. Like it's not just, okay, Taiwan politics. They're also talking about like, okay, master chefs in Taiwan, how Taiwan deals about their COVID response. Um, you know, old photos of Ilha Formosa, of how beautiful it was. Um, you know, the history aspect, popular Netflix shows about Taiwan that you could learn more about Taiwan, you know? So they're covering different aspects and they're not doing so much tabloidy stuff. They're covering solid articles and solid facets that a lot of English media in video is not covering. And video is also a very important platform because uh, that's how many people consume uh, media right now on their phone these days. So I do think I do think I would give it a chance as well. I do know there has been some controversy. Some people have said that, okay, maybe the app could be better or maybe the website platform, they shouldn't have spent so much money on it. Uh, so, or maybe they should have used something uh, more, you know, like an existing sort of system, uh, uh, you know, to save costs, to bootstrap a bit more. But, uh, or, or even some debates over the name Taiwan Plus itself. However, I think overall, it has a pretty strong start. I get what they're doing. I get that they they want to make these videos that you can share with other people so to get them hooked into Taiwan, to get them interested in Taiwan. Um, if you talk to a lot of people, expats around the world or digital nomads, they don't consider Taiwan as a first destination quite often. you know. And you require 
uh, means to reach out. Uh, for earlier generations, it's because somebody mentioned, hey, you could teach English in Taiwan. Taiwan's really cool. You should check it out. Uh, nowadays, of course, we go by videos or Taiwan's COVID response has been very uh, good for Taiwan. Taiwan's Olympics performance has been good for Taiwan. I do hope that since we're spending money investing in here that maybe we could look back many years from now and said, say Taiwan Plus is a good idea. If it fails, it's okay. We can still adapt and try other means to build our own. Like Nicola said, we do need our own BBC. We do kind of need our own, uh, maybe our own version of NHK or something. Even China has their own. They call it CGTN. You know, it used to be called CCTV, right? To, to spread the word about China. Uh, I do think that um, Focus Taiwan and Taiwan Plus is not uh, uh, as, you know, state Backed, so you're not going to see lots of profiles praising, uh, let's say, Taiwan. Wen. They're actually praising Taiwan. So this is a great means and platform, I think, uh, or attempt at least at spreading our word for now. Let's let's see how it ends up. Hopefully it ends up well. And that's where we'll leave it here this week, here on Taiwan This Week. And I've been joined today by Nicola Smith. Thanks for having me. And Sean Su. It's great to be back again. And thanks for tuning in to this week's edition of Taiwan This Week here on ICRT with me, Gavin Phipps. And don't forget to check out Taiwan This Week podcast on your favorite podcast app, where, of course, you can get access to all our previous shows. Tune in again next Friday evening at 9 for another informative look at the top stories of the week with Taiwan This Week. And don't forget to also check out our podcast on our website, icrt.com.tw. Now keep it here for more music and news only on ICRT FM 100.